Welcome back, everyone, to the Disaster Tough Podcast, where we share insights into the big plays and right calls of leadership. We dive deep into the stories, lessons learned, and ideas that will help you in the field. Let's go. Welcome back to the Disaster Tough Podcast. When the moon hits your eye, I just got back from Italy. It was awesome. In fact, I was in Holland, Italy, and Switzerland. I literally took two steps into Germany, jumped into Germany like my allied ancestors of old. And um, it was uh, it was a great trip um, overseas. And uh, there's several takeaways for me. Um, of course, the meat of this conversation is going to be about Pompeii observations I made there on site. And uh, of course, the EM hat was going off and thinking about how I do that as an EM. Um, I was thinking about a lot of the leadership things I learned um, through the historical lessons. Uh, but I want to talk about Anne Frank's house. On, uh, on the way over there, uh, this was a really last minute trip. There was a lot of moving parts and uh, basically found out 48 hours before I left that I would be out there. And um, uh, on the way over, we tried to get Anne Frank tickets and the tickets were for Wednesday, but we couldn't really go Wednesday, we found out. And um, uh, on Monday, when I was in Holland, um, Amsterdam, uh, we were close to Anne Frank's house. And so I said, hey, let me just uh, see if I can talk to somebody. I did talk to multiple people and they were very generous who allowed uh, us to get in there and uh, to observe that history, um, to walk through what it would have been like for Anne Frank and her family. Um, history lesson. I'm sure everybody knows the Anne Frank story if you've read the book, um, those writings, her journal writings. Uh, but essentially, because of the Nazis, they were forced into hiding. Her father owned a shop. They used the locals to be able to get additional supplies. And uh, before uh, before everybody started being rounded up, they were smart enough to say, hey, they're going to take a section of this multi-story building and uh, cut it off so you couldn't find it from the outside. And they hid, hid away for two years. And uh, at the end of the two years... Um, uh, unfortunately, uh, the Nazis found them and um, uh, several members of the family died, including Anne Frank. Um, and yet I was thinking about the kind of cruelty it takes um, to be able to get to that point. And more importantly, how does a population get manipulated into um, thinking that's a, a course of action that is even re close to reasonable? And um, I don't know. It was just uh, a lot of thoughts about Anne Frank's house and uh, with so much conflict in the world. One of the conclusions I came to is that um, whether from a macro level or from a micro level, it's incredibly important to treat people with respect and dignity. And uh, when things are extreme, to also say, hey, that's extreme, even if it's heading towards extreme. And um, there's a lots of things that we say in this world that are choice and that we say that um, um, live your truth your truth is a, a fascinating way to say that there is no truth, but I believe that there's truth. And, uh, and at least for me in this show, uh, we believe that every person on earth um, has um, basic dignity, right? Like they're humans and we should treat them um, like humans and 
when we stop seeing people as uh, our neighbor, that's a real problem. Everybody should be your neighbor. Um, anyways, so um, even though the thoughts are on Anne Frank's house, this isn't like the World War II podcast. So uh, we're going to talk about Pompeii. Pompeii is fascinating for so many different reasons. Oh, my goodness. Uh, oh, also, I need to do a couple other shout outs, random shout outs on this podcast episode before we get there. So thank the people at Anne Frank's house for uh, helping us uh, fix our schedule issue. I uh, want to thank the uh, River Cruise captain. Uh, I think his name was Jim uh, in Holland. I asked him if I could steer the ship. And we got into an open body of water area. And he said yes. And I was like, great. And all of a sudden he said, hey, go down that uh, canal. Go down that tunnel. And so I started steering the ship. Uh, you can call me cruise ship captain John uh, from here on out. Uh, it was a blast. It was raining. It was fun. I was going through all the canals in Holland and uh, one of the highlights of my life. The L3 Harris Extreme 400P radio solves problems and is specifically designed for emergency services. How do we know? We field tested it with medical, urban search and rescue, and collapse and confined structures. This radio is amazingly tough. Check out the L3 Harris Extreme 400P radio at L3Harris.com right now. How do you spell Doberman Emergency Management? EOP, OEP, HVA, HMP, Thyra, TTX, Drone, PDA. Whenever you need an expert, Doberman Emergency Management field experts are there for support. Contact an expert at DobermanEMG.com today. Um, in Switzerland, we met an amazing mother and daughter. Uh, Rachel and Sydney. So reach, uh, so shout out to them. I told them to subscribe to this podcast. Uh, I actually invited them to uh, fondue with us. Yes, fondue with Swiss cheese and Swiss chocolate. Uh, great experience. But uh, Sydney is um, in uh, Rome right now um, in college, and we're trying to get her to become an emergency manager. So we'll see if that happens. But uh, shout out to them and uh, everybody who's just so generous to us uh, in Europe, of course. Um, okay. So now Pompeii. So I don't know about you, but, uh, one being like a disaster guy, lots of responses, um, two degrees in EM I've studied Pompeii and I studied a lot or, uh, surrounding different disasters in history. I thought I knew Pompeii and I thought I knew what happened with Mount Vesuvius, man. Uh, I got an education, um, most of the day. I was I was shocked by different things. And there's a picture of me. I don't know if I'll share it or not, but there's a picture of me uh, where um, somebody else took it and I'm staring at Mount Vesuvius. And uh, funny enough, when I was staring at that um, volcano, um, I, I kept on thinking, I was like, how how in the world did how in the world did the flow actually kill people here? Because like the, I'm looking at the distance. And I've been to lots of disasters and studied this stuff and um, basically uh, came down to the conclusion that uh, the information I had versus what actually happened had to be different. So I went on a, an insane deep dive for several days learning more about uh, what happened in Pompeii. Um, after I kind of do this segment, I'm going to talk about what I would do as an emergency manager. So I don't want to keep teasing that out, but... Uh, so let's like look at the the facts of Pompeii, the city, and versus Mount Vesuvius, and like setting the stage for what would have happened. Because I think between movies about uh, what happened in Pompeii, 
some literature, some art, um, and only one, which is uh, fascinating to me, only one letter. Um, I think it's uh, Piney the Junior. Uh, there's a letter from him to a cousin after what happened in Pompeii. Um, and some gravestones, do we like really know what, what happened in Pompeii? So setting up the stage, um, the facts, uh, a city of 20,000 people. The city had been there for a thousand years, which uh, was uh, fascinating to me. City is there for a thousand years, lots of different cultures. The so Romans eventually get hold of the area. And somebody described it to me like, um, uh, like the Las Vegas of the Roman Empire. And um, man, were they not kidding? There are brothels everywhere in uh, Pompeii. Uh, they have uh, genitalia on um, on the street, like marked in stone, so you know where to get to with, for the brothels, bathhouses, um, all kinds of stuff. You could even, at one place, um, get soup, like almost like a fast food, like get soup and then choose the picture of the act that you wanted to be performed on you uh, while uh, after you, you ate your soup. I mean, this this town was pretty insane. I've been to Rome. I've been to a lot of uh, uh, ancient sites, and uh, this was by far the most uh, visual, if you could say. Um, the, the Las Vegas of uh, the Roman Empire is uh, probably a great way to say it. But um, 20,000 people lived here. Because of Volcano, they had an incredible uh, setup in terms of agriculture, uh, forestry. Uh, they had access to the water. There was a major river that went by there. And so, so it was basically just an incredibly wealthy area. And um, Naples was nearby and some other towns. There's about five or six different towns nearby. But this was like, you know, the hot spot, right? Um, and a lot of uh, a lot of traffic would go through there. A lot of sailors who didn't speak the language, which is part of the reason why uh, there's so many pictures of different things that you could have performed on you or the or the food because they couldn't speak. They just pointed the picture. So uh, 20,000 people, though. When my concept of going to Pompeii was that it was going to be like right at the base of Mount Vesuvius and everybody died. In terms of the logistics of what actually happened was out of the 20,000 people is uh, estimated that more like only 2,000 people died that most of the people got out. And there's a several reasons for that. 12 years prior to, um, to the eruption, <clears throat> the, uh, there was a major earthquake in the area. And that earthquake destroyed a lot of the infrastructure in Pompeii and surrounding areas. It was also most likely the like big kickoff to what would be the crescendo 12 years later for Mount Vesuvius. So you have this major earthquake they still they basically the estimation is that the romans because they were such great engineers and they they understood landscapes so well is that they literally just didn't know that mount vesuvius was a volcano they just assumed it was a mountain and if they would have known it was a volcano they would have moved the city um, basically everybody agrees on that so they were closer than they should have but they were not at the base they were still miles away from it uh in my estimation just by visual it was anywhere from like five to 30 miles, depending on like where you're looking at uh, on the volcano. But um, they were several miles away from it and they're right on the water. And the water used to come up right to like the marina came right up to the base of um, of the town. So I'm standing there thinking 
before I knew the 20,000 people got out or the 18,000 people got out, I'm thinking, okay, I understand a paraclastic flow, but like that would still take um, like hours to get down to here. That, that, that flow would still, um, because of that distance, would still take a while to get down there. Um, there would be no lava. It was only ash. Um, I'll talk about that in a little bit. But uh, the city was much larger and much more preserved than I thought it was going to be. Uh, my perception, again, was that there was like streets. Some streets, some, um, some basically rubble piles. And uh, because of the amount of ash there was like 25 meters yeah you heard that right of ash that fell and started compacting on, on top of the city it was the city was multi-story they can see that um and it really preserved this huge site they haven't uh excavated the whole thing yet and what is awesome about that is that you're walking around the city and i would say 90 percent looks like it's uncovered uh, there's a section where it's not yet and they're starting to work on it and you're staring up at like this huge mound uh the immediate connotation came to my mind was ninth ward if you've ever been the ninth ward in louisiana and uh either with the hurricane or the hurricane um uh, research afterwards from katrina i had the exact same imagery i'm looking up at this massive wall that hasn't been excavated yet. It was just a mound, right? Um, and it looked exactly like the ninth ward in the levee. So if you're looking at that, it's well above your head um, and the amount of ash that fell on there. And the reason is because the direction of the volcano and the wind, everything went to Pompeii. So the paraclastic flow, uh, all the ash. Uh, there's another site uh, pretty close to there that was also well-preserved because of that ash. But areas pretty close to there were not because, again, it wasn't a, a lava flow. It was a huge explosion, kind of like Mount St. Helens. If you think about like the side of the entire volcano just like launching off. Um, so if you didn't kill, get killed by that debris, the earthquakes, um, then you had a little bit of time before the paraclastic flow. But again, a massive city. And so you you have several barriers there. And then... Um, and then eventually the ash starts falling and falling and falling. Um, but anyways, so I'm looking around and I'm like, okay, I don't, at the time I didn't know about the 20,000 versus 2000. I'm looking at the distance. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the infrastructure that's preserved, the amount of ash that fell and um, uh, really blew my mind. So some of the ways that they know that people evacuated um, and my mind starts to to come up with the concepts here and you're going to start hearing some of the the ideas here naturally for em but because of the marina they had the roman navy there and uh the the romans when the earthquake started happening they thought it was their gods so 12 years prior there's a lot of writing about um hey we must have done something really stupid um made uh, mars angry and there's this massive earthquake but the massive earthquake uh, caused them to build all new infrastructure that was to the most modern of, you know, nine, uh, 83 AD, right? So you could see like the newest infrastructure at the time and the building types. However, if you have another earthquake and those tremors come through and your house isn't either rebuilt or something's happening and, you know, it's like, well, I don't have a place to live and I can get on the ship and I can get out of here. I'm going to get out of here. So it wasn't about the volcano at that point. It was just 
the earthquakes and the tremors. Um, when um, when that happened, the, there was a mass exodus. There's a, a gravestone of an individual in Naples that after he had it said after he had left Pompeii, he jo- joined the Roman army and um, was killed in battle. And it said that his uh, place of birth was Pompeii. And so they, they knew that he had gotten out. But what a life, right? You live in Pompeii, uh, massive eruption. You think he escaped it, so he joined a military, and then you get killed in battle. So uh, there's there's the big clue that people were getting out. The other big clue was that this letter, um, a single, it was actually two letters, but only one individual wrote about it. And it was to his cousin about his, um, his uncle being uh, Piney the Senior. Uh, I don't know why junior and senior for for uh, um, uncle and and uh, cousin or uncle and nephew, but um, they for whatever reason chose not to get out, uh, not to leave. Let's say the tremors didn't uh, damage their property, and so they felt like oh, okay, they were spared. And then everything starts happening, and uh, he got out, but the uncle didn't get out. Um, <clears throat> so lots of people are are running. They didn't stay, and they were able to run. So that's the, that's the, the one big note there. The other big note, um, and I knew this beforehand, but I think it's a misconception for a lot of people. The ash, when it started to land on everything, one, it per- perfectly preserved it, but natural material still decays. So if it's uh, people who are hit by the pyroclastic flow, pyroclastic flow, oh my gosh, I'm going to get so much heck for that. Uh, everybody who's hit by the pyroclastic flow, uh, you know, you're out. Uh, then if you start inhaling uh, the ash and you're not able to, to get covered up, you're out. So a lot of the, uh, the human remains were people taking their tunics and uh, trying to cover, cover them, their mouths up. Um, and no one, a 95 back then, right? So, um, but anyways, when the ash landed on people, <clears throat> the, it, it covered them up, but then the humans uh, remains started to decay the meat started to decay, all this stuff started to decay and essentially left a shell. Well, they didn't know that. In the 1800s, uh, they had found the letters from the 1600s. So they knew about Pompeii. They didn't know where it was. Uh, it was completely covered by this massive hill now. And um, they uh, they only had these couple letters to reference. It's like this big thing. So they knew it was in the region. In the 1800s, they found it. They started uncovering it. Well, it's very interesting um, in those two parts is that the uh, the first people who started uncovering it uncovered one of the brothels and saw all the imagery, uh, all the paintings for what you could do on the walls and recovered it. Um, they thought this place shouldn't be uncovered. Um, however, other archaeologists uh, got there and started uncovering the, the whole of the city and started working through it. And um, one of the architect, uh, um one of the researchers, um, he started noticing like these these empty pockets in the ash. So he decided to put a pipe down there and something that was uh, really innovative at the time and filling up the holes with plaster. And when the plaster dried, he went in there and uncovered it. And lo and behold, he found the first human shape. So what you see from Pompeii isn't the actual body but rather the perfectly outlined shell i mean you can see eyes nose uh lips um 
teeth, the whole deal. You can see the shape, but it is a shell. And the um, there's um, there's shapes of people, there's shapes of animals, there's shapes of food, um, all kinds of different stuff. Um, and uh, there was a hundred and nine different uh, human remains like that that they had found. Unfortunately, during World War II, going back to that World War II thing. Um, it was bombed and a lot, they lost a lot of the, um, the remains there, or at least uh, a lot of the shells, the castings. So anyways, you have this frame of reference. So, uh, the other, the last piece I want to provide to you is kind of like a history lesson, uh, really different than what we usually go into, but it's really fascinating stuff to me is that there was two amphitheaters. There was a small one and a large one, and they were both on the same side of the city as the government. So you have the the two amphitheaters, the government, and then you have all the shops mixed in with uh, some of these homes. So the homes, some of these homes were bigger than uh, what we have now, which is uh, pretty surprising. Uh, but they were all intermixed with these shops, and again, it was all about the brothels, brothels, bathhouses, uh, homes, and um, soup and sex. Uh, that's basically what we're calling it, but. Um, and so you have a, you have a lifestyle here, but in that lifestyle, you have a lot of uh, factors that were surprising to me. One, uh, the shapes on the streets that allowed people to know where to go. Well, the, those brothels were like at the marina. Those brothels were at the edge of town. There was there was like one that we found that uh, was in the center of, of town, but it was uh, really small, and it might have been for somebody's home. So you can assume that a lot of the public gathering areas were on the edge of town, 20,000 people, and the two amphitheaters, which were on the opposite side of Mount Vesuvius, by the way, in terms of the city. So now you're starting to have a frame of reference, right? What would you do as an emergency manager? Well, there's the old school version. Uh, when I say old school, I'm talking about 2,000 years ago. I'm talking about what to do now, like if you're in Naples. So... This is this is where uh, a lot of my thoughts came in. <clears throat> It'd be fun to see on social media like what people would do um, in, if they were in Pompeii um, <clears throat> after they got some soup. Uh, but um, the reality is they had a system in place for water distribution for people to know how to get out based off of like literally the road. So even if you couldn't see, you could feel. And uh, there, there was evacuation, natural evacuation routes. Um, plus, the um, the Navy was there, um, these ships at least, and um, they still had um, like carts and other things that they could get out. So, let's start from twelve years prior. Twelve years prior to Pompeii being destroyed, uh, you have a major earthquake that is. Um, uh, m disrupted life in every way in Pompeii, and they had to rebuild. If I was an emergency manager in Pompeii at that time, for whatever the cause, right? The causality is not uh, important to me at this point because I don't know there's a volcano there, right? If I'm in their time period. So they, you don't know there's a volcano, but you do know that this, this area can get earthquakes, and it will for whatever reason. And um, that's when I'd be like, okay, if there's earthquakes, how do I deal with earthquakes? Well, the Romans knew how to deal with the earthquakes. So I would start doing uh, public forums, things that if they went to the amphitheater, especially after the earthquake, say, hey, guys, 
coming here to have a good time. But remember, if there's an earthquake, don't stand under the doorway. Get out of your house. Um, head towards this direction or that direction. That's like an easy way to do public messaging during the public gathering. Uh, the other thing is you could do if you were part of the um, like a Roman authority, um, there was no markings for homes, right? They didn't mark their their addresses like the way we mark addresses, but they required everybody to go to one of like 40 different spots to collect water. That would be a great area to um, provide a public message. Even public gathering, if you're trying to figure out uh, like counting people. Now, they had many set different social classes, slaves and otherwise. Um, however, if you want to do an accounting of people, um, get people out of their homes in an earthquake and count so that you would know where to go. And if you know uh, people were stuck, especially um, in those higher social classes. And a way, the reason why I bring that up is um, like today, that would be unimaginable. But back then, if you have generals there, if you have uh, senior leadership there, you're going to want to know if they, they made it to their um, evacuation zone uh, or mustering location. So I would use the... I would use the water collection spots as mustering locations because they're outside. And then I'd use the evacuation routes to get people out. Um, so that's 12 years out, right? So you have a lot of time to indoctrinate people. And because, you know, 90% of 80% of people got out, they might've been doing stuff like that. They were hyper aware of this earthquake, right? Because it destroyed everything before. And so they, um, they surely uh, saw the destruction of that and what happened to people. And so, um, if there's, Hey, if there's major tremors again, or there's a major earthquake, this is what we got to start doing. Hey, we just want to do a quick pause X to thank our sponsors, L3 Harris, proper Paladin by Acela, impulse Doberman emergency management, and especially all of you who have been donating to our podcast. Thank you for helping us boost the signal. All right, let's jump back in. So like Ash obviously isn't normal Ash. You got fiberglass in there. You got, um, gosh, a lot of different things in there that, um, are going to just kill you straight up. So you got to cover people up. Um, the material that they used for um, their clothes obviously did not work. And um, man, as soon as you see that first that first side of plume, you know that wind's headed your direction. So you got to get people out immediately. Um, so I would have organized um, different groups of soldiers. That would have been your primary use for um, any kind of emergency back then to... Uh, go to those collection points and get people on uh, large um, carts and just start like pushing them towards the marina and uh, getting them out of there. Anything that's opposite of the wind. So some of the other things I would have done on top of like public education and awareness, uh, potentially emergency supplies. So if I knew the marina was like my best course of action to get people out of there, I would naturally store things there. Um, the um the environment to be able to store it would have been natural anyways for um, the ships coming in and dropping off but if you had emergency supplies there so that as um, families or as individuals get onto the ship they have some material to help them land tents or otherwise um, and in other communities i would have again that 12 years prior thing i would have started working with the five other communities saying hey if we have another major earthquake here uh where do where do we settle and um, if you get everybody out to uh, a safe distance away, let's say like your your sheltering operations in Naples, but you have a relationship with the five other communities, um, what I would have done is based off of where your 
mustering location is therefore your city block you could say hey these five city blocks are going to um going to be uh they're going to migrate now over to this community that community you know a b c d so you can start separating people um in an organized manner and you're not just have a major influx to any community and therefore creating major problems for yourself um the infrastructure infrastructure in pompeii was the the best stuff you could ever get it's the newest of the new and um you're not really helping out yourself there um and i think let's see what else i had on here um early warning systems so the early warning systems for um mount vesuvius uh funny enough would have been the giant explosion um if it wasn't for the tremors and earthquakes so that's all uh, that's all um ancient world stuff there was a lot of stuff that they could have done and i'm going to guess that they did a lot of those things because they got so many people out uh yes people run for their lives but uh, romans were so organized that it's hard to imagine that they didn't have a system in place or at least forced system in place um we know that the communities around pompeii grew exponentially basically overnight and that's because of an influx of you know several thousand people in each of those communities that grew funny enough uh being in, in naples after going through pompeii all day you see a lot of the same stuff uh the houses intermixed with the shops the the street types um how they how they basically built naples i mean wow what a um what a fascinating case study to see hey what was different between uh pompeii and naples and what's the similar those kinds of um cultural and architectural um norms um remained and it's really fascinating to me anyways so modern day so when you're talking about pompeii we talked about early warning systems evacuation plans public uh, education and awareness emergency supplies and shelters communication systems infrastructure and building codes collaboration uh with uh neighboring communities all that stuff right mustering locations even well you could do the same things now and we do the same things now but on a much more advanced level their current systems um the what we found out is that they had about two weeks notice before there's uh, an eruption so <clears throat> if you have two weeks to get people out of naples you have a pretty good shot they have a train system um some of the train system is more advanced than the others uh they have um obviously roads and uh ports and it's a very popular port for cruise liners so if you think about hurricane maria and using cruise liners for both sheltering operations and uh, response operations uh you already have a system in place to start helping out a lot of people even if um uh mount vesuvius goes off so your early early warning systems i had suggested that they use the amphitheaters well the biggest amphitheater uh in naples that i'm aware of is uh napoli's uh soccer stadium the football stadium i saw a match between barcelona and napoli in the stadium last week and uh it was a draw by the way one one what was fascinating about that um was that they required fans essentially get there two hours before the game they were chanting for those two hours before the game and up to the very last second and it is kind of mayhem they in the most european security 
uh, perspective I can possibly imagine. They have like a legit moat around the field. Um, it's it's not filled with water, obviously, but it's like four or five feet wide. It, I think it's like something like eight to ten feet deep, and uh, it was used for um, for walking around the bottom. But it also prevented people to getting on the field. However, uh, Naples um, calls himself a football town. They are all in for their team. Everybody's involved. You see it everywhere. It's like if you walked around Columbus for Ohio State. I mean, it's um, it's a uh, really big stuff. But it's also where everybody congregates, right? It's the thing that everybody talks about. The amount of influence one of their main players could have by saying, hey, guys, we live at the base of this volcano. If we start to get um, some notices here, if there was like some kind of a, like a short video before the game, that would probably be do, do more good than any other kind of system. Um, any kind of early warning system, any kind of alert by having a popular player that everybody loves getting on there and just doing like a, a 15 second before uh, the game one, everyone would listen. Every single person would listen because one, they don't do announcements very often and I wouldn't say they worship, but man, they, they love these players. And so when a player gets on there, they, they all get quiet. So what a great opportunity for them to, to use some public messaging there. Um, in terms of the evacuation plans, Naples and the surrounding uh, communities, uh, wow, they're packed in. It's very tight. The best shot you have is the water, um, if you can get enough ships in there. Um, the other uh, great thing is um, your transportation routes. However, if there's an earthquake, well, guess what? You're not probably not using the train. You're probably not using the road. So now you're walking. But the walking... Or, or bicycles potentially um it's very mountainous there great for people who are in shape not great for people who are not in shape or people with you know have identified um with a disability so uh, you're gonna have a lot of people who are stuck if you can't get out what do you do and um, that has to go down to your emergency supplies and shelters luckily for a place like naples um they're not really too concerned about the paraclastic flow from um, from the volcano, but certainly if there's a direction a change direction in the wind, we're going to have to deal with a ton of ash. And how do you deal with all that ash? Uh, again, think Mount St. Helens. Um, and if you're if you're walking through that, what do you do? Um, the uh, the emergency supplies because of COVID and N95 masks. I don't know how many people would want to use it or not want to use it. But hopefully they would be wise enough to say, okay, like um, I got to cover um, with a respirator of some sort. And so your number one supply is going to be respirator. And then getting food that's not contaminated, um, that's going to be uh, critically important. Um, outside of the uh, early warning slash communication systems, there's also the things that are immediate, right? You still have to do from like a public messaging standpoint, using a player by far the best option easily. Um, however, in terms of like timely communications with people, I was a foreigner and uh, luckily for me, my carrier uh, had service in Italy, but not everybody has it. How do you deal with those kind of things, especially if communication systems go down? Um, Zach Boris from EM Weekly talked about uh, all, the, uh, all the systems in the US being hit. I was actually in Europe so um, I found about that one actually via Zach, funny enough. But um, how do you communicate with people? Um, there are very limited companies. 
Um, one that I comes off the top of my head, uh, hint, hint, they were uh, on this podcast um, back in October, um, that does uh, voice um, outdoor systems, but you have to use the cell phones. You have to get everybody involved. And um, quite frankly, I don't know what Italy's policy is on emergency notifications, but I'm, I'd be uh, surprised if it wasn't similar to here. Um, infrastructure and building codes. Uh, the building codes, based off of visual observation, uh, were not as stringent as the U.S. Um, however, I'm not an engineer, and um, you would hope that they would uh, help out with um, earthquakes. I would especially look at um, um, transportation infrastructure and making sure that if you have time, you're working with different community partners, um, stakeholders to advocate for um, uh, safe passage, even during uh, major earthquakes. How do you do that? Like, you know, making sure your bridges, so, so, there's so many bridges in that area. Um, how can they withstand uh, a major earthquake? Um, collaborating with uh, neighboring communities, all their communities. If you're looking, if you're in Naples and you look around the bay, uh, you can't tell where one stops and one starts. They're all intermingled. So when you're in a community like that, um, what can happen, at least in the U.S., is that uh, political infighting starts. It, it's it's very it becomes very uh, difficult. Any place that separates uh, a large city into several small cities, but they're all intertwined, they all feel like they have to carve out their piece. It would take a ton of time, effort, and uh, communication to make sure that the politics of the region uh, were intact so that you could move things. Um, however, the good news is for like emergency services in a catastrophic disaster, those MOUs are typically in place. So emergency services, probably okay. Uh, albeit personalities could get in the way. Uh, from a large scale perspective, uh, emergency notifications, um, uh, infrastructure builds, uh, emergency supplies, where people are going, even the evacuation routes, um, all of that would probably take considerable amount of effort because of, again, uh, essentially pride. But um, people want to hold on to their own and they hope that there's never a disaster and those people are, are usually a politician. So talking for 40 minutes here or so. But looking at uh, Pompeii from an ancient world perspective, uh, looking at uh, Naples uh, from a modern day perspective, didn't really talk about Naples as an architectural site and all those tourists being there and something happening. That'd be really fascinating. But again, um, you would potentially have two weeks notice before an eruption. So they're close to the agricultural site um, of Pompeii and uh, you'd, be, you'd be okay there. So one thing I didn't know um, even though I brought up the brothels and the bathhouses, which are technically different, which I didn't know at the time, but they are different. Um, and all the pictures on the walls, um, barring the subject of the imagery, uh, what I would do is uh, I would require if anywhere, because there there's paintings everywhere, right? They painted inside the buildings, outside the buildings, in the brothels for different things, like even soups, like whatever, like whatever the painting is. Um, I would have required um, in my city that if that was the normal communication for people in uh, public messaging, I would put it everywhere, especially by um, the 40 different water collection sites, um, images of earthquake, 
people meet, leaving, how to like where to collect. So between voice imagery and um, public events, you're able to really get um, people involved in the process, especially if they're new to the area or they don't speak the language. So I uh, forgot to include that. But um, for us in our modern day imagery, uh, social media is the way to go. Uh, we get like a half a million views on a post and that post usually is uh, something humorous. So um, despite the the topics being so difficult, uh, try to add some uh, humor and um, popular voices into things and you might get a, a, a better uh, read on it. I want to make one last uh, shout out for emergency management in general. One thing that I thought was fascinating, I was talking to an ER doctor uh, this last week. He was actually texting me and uh, we were poking fun at each other's industries. And he said something to the effect of no one will ever like emergency management because no one likes the messenger. And it made me really think about our role, um, his perception of our role and uh, kind of the reality that we have to deal with is if you're not always getting uh, what you want and things are sometimes bleak, maybe try shifting from just being the messenger to being a doer and uh, being a, per a solution provider. Yeah, the person who provides solutions without complaining um, gets noticed and people like that especially if uh, you don't add headaches to the other people in your world if you need to provide solutions. So just a random thing that I was thinking about here at the uh, end of this episode. Um, we are going to be trying so hard to be uh, doing an episode uh, weekly. As you know, I also am the chief executive officer for Doberman. So between running the readiness lab, Doberman, Impulse, and this podcast, there's a you know, what, 77 different things on my plate or whatever. So um, we brought on more staff so that we can make sure that uh, we can produce this every week and we can do everything else that we need to do. Um, thank you for your patience as I've uploaded, you know, when I could close enough to every week, but uh, I want to make sure that it's every week on Tuesday, um, hopefully starting next week. So uh, thanks for tuning in um, and we will see you for the next one. Peace.